0: Well, good morning. So far through our study of the book of Nehemiah, the theme that we've identified, particularly in Nehemiah chapter 9, has been the theme of regeneration or transformation that takes place in worship and how worship causes transformation to happen in every area that we turn. As we've moved through this prayer that begins back in Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra is exhorted or told by the Levites to stand up and to glorify God from everlasting to everlasting. As a theme, this has been somewhat compelling to me to consider, what does it mean to glorify God? This is a challenging exhortation. He is God of everything. He created everything. He holds everything together. How is fickle man supposed to glorify God? Well, this is a big challenge. It's a difficulty that we grapple with every time we turn to God's Word. As Christians, remember that this exhortation to glorify God is not something just given to Ezra by the Levites and Nehemiah as a historical matter of fact, but this is an exhortation that is given to all of God's people. Glorify God. That's what you are here to do. The Westminster... Catechism asks, what is the chief end of man or what is our purpose? The answer is to glorify God, to enjoy Him forever. Well, if this is our purpose and this is what we're here for, Ezra gives us a pretty decent model of considering how might we do that. He begins simply with a confession. Confessing who God is, what He's done, what He's about, and and everything that He holds together. He begins by walking us through creation. And we see this theme of transformation take place just in a simple acknowledgement of who God is. He created a perfect world. We should rejoice that we get to live in this creation that God has given to us. And we see that rejoicing turn to glory. And we see then even turning to the failings of the people. We see affliction turn to a reliance on God's provision. We see the delight that we might have in earthly possessions be transformed into a delight that we have in God's goodness. As the greatest possession that we could possibly have is the goodness of God. We see his great mercy accounted as Ezra is reminded of the failings of his fathers and historically of the failings of the people of Israel to have this special relationship that's established with God who has made made them his chosen people with a promise that's then neglected. We're coming to the end of this prayer this morning. And we see confession take new shape as Ezra begins to lead the people with Nehemiah's leadership to be identified as his people. This morning we'll pick up in Nehemiah chapter 9. I ask as we get ready to look at this, this theme of stand up and glorify God from everlasting to everlasting, where does it end? That's what we're looking at. What is the end of our glorifying God? As we prepare to read with that thought in our mind as we move through the sermon this morning, I pray that God would lead you in your understanding. And I pray that we would ask Him for that this morning. Father in heaven, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the truth that it gives us, the guidance that it gives us in life. Lord, I pray that you would lead us in our understanding this morning as we seek to understand you, as we seek to understand our life and what it means to live in a relationship with you. God, I pray that you would transform our hearts. God, I pray that you would be glorified today. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. With your Bibles open to Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 32, I'll I'll read out loud and I ask that you read along with me. Nehemiah 9, verse 32, the Bible says, Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people. Since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day, Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. You have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from the wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, We make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed documents are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. We begin in verse 32 after Ezra has recounted everything that God has done historically for the people of Israel. perhaps we should be reminded that During this time in history, the Babylonian captivity has taken place, the Persian Empire has conquered Babylon, and the Persian king has been somewhat gracious towards Israel and allowing the people to return from captivity back to Jerusalem, giving them even some leadership and sending Nehemiah establishing himself as governor over the region, accountable not to himself. Israel at this time in history is not a sovereign nation. It's not a sovereign place. It is accountable to Persia, and Nehemiah is accountable to Persia. But they've rebuilt. The walls have been rebuilt in 52 days. The structure stands. The temple has already been somewhat returned to, uh, well, not even close to its former glory in Solomon's day, but it's been rebuilt, and Ezra led that work around the same time. Our God. In this accounting of history, Ezra turns to our God. It's possessive. He's reminded that the relationship between Israel and God is a personal one. And we could say the same this morning about the relationship between God and those who know Him as Christians. Between the church and God. We're chosen people. Set apart for His purposes. Our God. The great, the mighty, the awesome God. The word great is referring to the fact that he stands with no defect, no imperfection. When we talk about God's attributes and we consider who he is, we're reminded that he is perfect in all things. And in fact, even his attributes, because he is so perfect, he is even known, as, known to define these attributes. When we, John writes that God is love, God is is faithful, he is persevering, there's no defect in him. The mighty, referring to his strong and enduring ability, not only does he stand without defect, but he has the ability to uphold all things. He is capable of all things. And the awesome you might be interested to know that in the Hebrew, the word awesome also would describe that he's fear-causing, or what that would mean is that his reverence, that he is fearful as we look at the bewilderment of who God is. Our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God. This is, gives us so much as we look at how Ezra continues as he says that he is the God who keeps the covenant. The evidence of God's faithfulness is seen that that he is without defect, that he is great, that he doesn't enter into any covenant by mistake. That he isn't finagled, that he isn't misled, but when he establishes a covenant with his people, even the covenant of grace, it is done with perfect intentionality because he is great. He has no defect. That He is mighty means that He is strong and able to uphold the covenants that He sets with His people. That He makes a promise and He has the ability to uphold it. And that He is faithful to do just that. That He is awesome causes us to see that these promises are not just an act of God's will or just kind of whim, but that they are an act of worship and glory and that they are a means that He uses to glorify Himself. These things that God has done in establishing covenants with his people are amazing. They are the evidence of his steadfast love, his enduring love. The King James, I think, says loving kindness. That his love endures forever, that it's a love like no other, that it's all-consuming, that it's never-ending, that it's all-enveloping. Our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all our hardships seem little to you that has come upon us. Even after this account, this prayer that Ezra has led us through, that he's led the people of Israel through historically, that he's led the people through history and seeing how God has provided for them, established them, been faithful in their disobedience and in their wickedness, disciplined them, all of these things, we turn to God and we say, do not let our hardships seem little to you. After all this recounting, after remembering everything that we've done to you, God, in our disobedience and in our failings, do not let our difficulties seem little to you. We're really back to making the confession that began this prayer. What we're really saying is God, I agree with you. You have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have acted faithfully. I wonder do we actually have that sort of attitude when we're faced with hardships in our lives? The reaction of most people whenever we're faced with hardships or difficult circumstances or issues that come up in our families and we see the church struggling. Do we turn to God and say that you've been faithful? Or do we have an attitude that says, God, you're letting us down. God, you're forsaking us. This is a real issue. It's actually leading us away from agreeing with God, who is always faithful. In fact, this is the stiff-necked attitude that the Israelites had for all of history. It's a stiff-necked people that God's chosen people continue to demonstrate in the way that we come to God. God, things are rough. You're letting me down. Until our attitude, until our prayer life, until the way, the way that we live our life is completely consumed by the love of God, we will not be able to come to Him with an attitude that truly worships Him. Until in our minds, in our hearts, and everything that we are is in a position to say, God, You are faithful in all circumstances. I am dealing with affliction and You are faithful even in this moment. We do not turn to God as an act of worship. In fact, even conservative Baptist who would rally against the, the issue of the prosperity gospel or a false, false gospel teaching that teaches that, that God exists almost as a vending machine of blessings. That if you're faithful to God, he'll, be, he'll bless you and He'll meet all of your needs. This idea is becoming more and more popular today, especially among young people who look at God in this way, as a blessing vending machine. The church has forgotten what it means to be blessed in affliction. I would say that the greatest thing my parents have ever done for me to bless me or to show me that they love me has been faithful to discipline me. Faithful to point me back to their love. From a cosmic perspective, the greatest thing that our Father does for us is to be faithful to bring us back to a place of honoring Him, to relying on Him. The greatest problem that comes with much provision or much physical blessing in the world is that People, by their own nature, because of our own fallen condition, because of the war that we face within ourselves and within the flesh, as we come to ourselves and because we're given much, we have the attitude that, that we're able to persevere much. I think about the economic status of our country and all over the world what people are dealing with as interest rates rise and all these other things come up. And we see the weakness of everything that we've placed All of our laurels, all of our, um, what's the word? All, All of our reliance upon. I'm reminded more than ever that there is nothing in this world that will uphold us forever. Except God. Even the person who has everything they could possibly want will face at the end of time, the time that all things will decay, all things will rust, all things will be destroyed. Only God's love will preserve a person forever. Only God's greatness, His lack of defect, only His might, His strength, and His power, only His awesomeness will endure from the end of time because this is the purpose for all of creation, to declare God's glory. Can we say, I agree with you, God? You have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have acted faithfully. Can we say, I agree with you, God? We have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law. Even going throughout church history, can we say that we have not acted faithfully? We've not paid attention to your commandments. We've not paid attention to the warnings that you've given to us. Even in their own kingdom amid great goodness that you gave them, large and rich land that you gave them, I agree with you, God. We did not serve you. And now you are faithful, we are slaves. Confession isn't just about admitting that we were wrong. Confession is admitting that God is right in everything that he does. It's admitting that God is just in everything that he does, that he is faithful in everything that he does. The prayer of Nehemiah in this confession is to say, God, you are right. Here we are in Jerusalem, the wall rebuilt, the temple rebuilt, and we are still subjugated and under dominion over those that you have placed over us. The kings of Persia that you have placed over us. And this is your will and you are right. We mentioned several weeks ago that whenever we recognize that there is nothing inside of us that could possibly be used as an appeal to mercy when we come before God, the only wise thing that we can do is appeal to mercy within the nature and character of God. This is a, a great reminder as we are reminded and we're able to take real peace and hold on to real hope, real confidence in knowing that God is merciful. Merciful. But can we say, I agree, that there is nothing within me, there's nothing inside of me that warrants God's mercy? There is nothing that justifies salvation that is inside of me, but that it is all in your character, all in your person, all in your graciousness, all in your loving kindness, all in your keeping of the covenants, all of your perseverance, because you kept the covenant when Israel forsook it. You took what you had promised and you endured it. God, you are faithful in all things. When I ask God, as Ezra did, to not let the hardships that we are going through seem little. What am I asking God to do? Am I asking him to intervene and fix all of these problems so that I can return to living a life that is not paying attention to his commandments, not paying attention to the warnings that he gave them, to not serving God? Or am I asking him to see that as the greatest affliction that inflicts God's people? We really have to shift the way that we think about these things. My greatest affliction is not dominion. My greatest affliction is not economic. My greatest affliction is not political. My greatest affliction is that born inside of me is a sinful condition that I inherited from my father. The greatest affliction inside of all people is that we are born in a flesh that lives in rebellion against God. Oh, we see this all over the place. It amazes me, even in the church, when we confront sin directly, how easily people are offended. Even the most mature of Christians will stand up and say that it is by God's grace that I am saved, that I am endured by Him. But we acknowledge sin, we name it. Our negligence, our disobedience, our rebellion, and we say, You've gone too far. This is really our attitude. To tell a Christian, someone who claims to love God and to love Him, and here's just an example. That failing to submit to the authority of the church in your life is actually a rebellion against God because God's word clearly tells us to live under authority. That if you are a Christian and you are not a member of a church, you are living in sin. Everyone's upset. I said that because I thought that it was safe I'd be preaching to the choir. But do we really understand what it means to be a part of a community? Do we have any conceptual understanding of what God has done in establishing a chosen people? When we spend time reading in 1 Peter that God has made us a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, a holy people, what does it mean to be holy? It means to be set apart, to be called out from the world that is around us. It's hard to be a called-out people when you're committed to living as a called-out person. We think the plural and the singular are interchangeable. They're not. They're not. God recognizes. He, he's all-knowing, folks. He, he knows that you're going to mess up. He even knows that the greatest of Christians is going to struggle with sin. I love reading the Gospels and looking at Jesus' life and all of His wonderful teachings. And, And perhaps the greatest part of the Gospels is that Jesus, unlike many of the New Testament writers, teaches with such simplicity, it's impossible to misunderstand what He's saying. He's so plain. The kingdom of God should be simple to us. And here's Christ without any demonstration, without any imperfection in Him, because He is God. He is great. He has no defect. I spend time reading Paul and his ideas. They massage my brain. They make me think. They, they, They compel me to consider what does it mean that Christ has atoned for me? What is this atonement? What is this great thing? And I'm reminded that Paul, just a man, Confesses that he has a thorn in his side that God has not removed, that God has told him, even in his affliction, my grace is sufficient for you. We must be clear the only affliction that we should be willing to bring to God is the fact that we have not yet been glorified. The only affliction that we should bring to God is the fact that I want to honor and I want to serve Him because I see His greatness, His might, His awesomeness, His covenant-keeping, His enduring love. And I want to love Him. And I can't. Because as Ezra recounts, our fathers, our priests, our Levites, our kings... Even me, I fail. I agree with you, God. I cannot keep the covenant that you have given me. But you are faithful in enduring it. Here is my affliction I bring to you. I agree with you, God. My affliction is that I still live in this world. My affliction is that I still war against sin. And it is not by my strength that I will overcome anything. It is by your strength. It's by your love and your grace that I will be transformed. It's through relying on you that my heart will be changed. It is through your loving kindness that you will take a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. It is through your loving kindness that you will write your laws upon my heart, that I might not just understand them as I read them, but that I will be able to experience them in my life. God, it is through your provision and your goodness that I will be able to see sickness in this world, suffering in this world, despair in this world, and I will be able to know, God, you are faithful in all things. God, as I see decay in this world, I will be able to know that you are the one that preserves me. That you are the one that will be faithful to perse... Preserve me from now until the time that we are in heaven, until even beyond that, till the time that you restore this whole earth, that I will be able to see your perfect creation the way that you designed it, that I will be able to walk in fields that are just as you would have them, grass that is soft, that doesn't cut. I'll be able to smell the wind without allergies. I'll be able to experience the seasons and know that you are God and that you are good, and all things will be great. God, the time that I am in heaven compares nothing to the time. That I look forward to of your new creation. God, the time that I'll be able to work with no pain. The time that I'll be able to breathe or, or exercise or enjoy the things of this earth without becoming winded or exasperated. God, these are my afflictions, and I agree with you. I want your goodness and your greatness. When we have the right attitude, it changes the way that we come to God. It changes the way that we worship Him. It changes the way that we view our afflictions. And more importantly, it is an encouragement that causes us to continue onward. And recognizing this in verse 38, Ezra says, Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed documents. Already he acknowledged God at the beginning in saying that he is the God who keeps his covenants. And this is interesting. Ezra says, we're going to make our own covenant. We're going to have a firm covenant in writing. Silly thing about covenants. What, What is it? We should probably talk about it since it's come up more than once in Ezra's prayer. It seems to almost be all encapsulating, almost thematic to the narrative, the driving force of the Bible. Maybe it's not the crux of the whole thing, but it certainly is this force that seems to be holding it together and defining the relationship between God and God's people. A covenant is almost like a contract. Entered into with mutual obligation between two parties with solemnity, with seriousness. We talk about covenants a lot in the church. We talk about it in terms of marriage. There's a marriage covenant. God's a part of that. That's why we talk about it. He brings two people together with a covenant. We exchange vows between one another. We talk about covenants Wait, the church even has a covenant. We talk about covenants in the church between mutual people being brought together. Well, what's the deal with God and how does this relate to God? God says, Ezra says that he's the God who keeps covenants. That's in verse 32. God doesn't negotiate covenant terms, does he? He commands his covenant with his people. There was no negotiation that took place between him and Abraham. There was no negotiation that took place between him and Noah. There was no negotiation that took place between him and Moses from Mount, or all of Israel on Mount Sinai. He says, this is my covenant with you that I have commanded. What is this covenant that God has commanded? In the church, we refer to the covenant of grace. The covenant that God has given us that he has ultimately accomplished everything that needs to be done on our end. And this is what's so beautiful about the Bible. We see this mutual obligation taking place in the Old Testament that points towards the law, keeping the law, obeying it, making sacrifices, all of these things to uphold it. And it all culminates, it all builds up to the moment that God himself in Christ Jesus would come onto the earth, that he would become incarnate and he would become the Blood sacrifice necessary for atoning, making at one those who have become separated from God, alienated from him. Making at one those people through the blood of the perfect sacrifice, the lamb slain on Calvary, Jesus Christ. This covenant still upheld. And because Christ is a perfect sacrifice, we said earlier that He was without sin, that He was without blemish, He becomes the replacement for what was an imperfect system of bulls and lambs and doves. And Christ becomes the perfect sacrifice for all people all over the world throughout all time. Capable of covering the sins of the whole world. Here's the mutual obligation. Because while Christ's sacrifice is sufficient for all people, it is only effective for those who would come to know Him as His personal Lord and Savior. It is only applied to those who would trust Christ, call Him Lord, and make Him Lord of their lives, who would call Him Master. God's covenant. commanded. Even in the Old Testament, and Jeremiah the prophet, he looked forward to this day that God would take this old system and that He would give us the law not on stone tablets, but written into our heart through the transformation that comes in new life. Here's God's covenant. But there's a relationship in this. There's something almost amazing happening, especially as we turn to verse 38, because Ezra, in looking at all these things, he says, we make a firm covenant in writing. I'd ask you to consider who are the parties in this covenant that Ezra's talking about. Is God a party in this firm covenant? Is the nation of Israel at this time in history saying, God, we're going to rewrite this covenant that you've given your people? Are we going to change it and and negotiate terms with you? Well, we've already said no. God doesn't negotiate covenant terms, he commands them. If you're Almighty, you get to command terms. Who are the parties? Verse thirty eight says, Because of all this, we, we, we are the parties. The nation of Israel gathered in the town square of Jerusalem with their new city walls built up around them. This is the culmination of spiritual revival taking place in history in the nation of Israel. That we, the nation of Israel, established this covenant amongst ourselves because we recognize that not since the days of Joshua, the days that we first came into this promised land, have we observed or worshipped you the way that you told us to observe and worship you. And so we, God, make this firm covenant in writing amongst ourselves that we would be faithful to all that you have commanded us because, God, we agree with you. We've not paid attention to your commandments. We've not paid attention to the warnings that you gave us through your prophets. In fact, throughout history, we killed your prophets whenever they told us what you told them to tell us that we didn't want to hear. We lived in rebellion against you. We have a rebellious heart. We're a stiff-necked people. Left to our own devices, I'm going to do things the way I want to instead of pursuing you because I don't actually have a heart of worship. I have a heart of lip service to you. And so here's my firm covenant, God. We, the nation of Israel, now that you've brought us back from Persia, now that we're back here, now that we have the wall, even though we're still under dominion to these kings and everyone else, we, the nation of Israel, make a covenant amongst ourselves to be faithful in worshiping you the way that you commanded us to worship you. Who are the parties? It is the people. This amazing truth or amazing demonstration of what it means to worship God. And I want you to think about this. Just just consider what's taking place through the narrative of Nehemiah. The people are returning. Ezra stands up on a platform. This is their celebration. This is where it all begins, right? In Nehemiah chapter 8. Ezra stands up on a platform, platform and he reads from the book of the law. I'd love to preach like that sometime. It'd be so much easier in preparation. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning. Just a second, I'm still in my... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This goes on. More than half the day goes away. Ezra's reading through Genesis. He gets all the way up to Genesis chapter 12, where God has established this special covenant with Abraham. And the focus of the Bible changes no longer in God's relationship with all of creation, but now with this chosen family, the descendants of Abraham, he goes all the way through Genesis 52, and he looks at the provisions that bring the people of Israel into Egypt through the wonderful blessings that are given to Joseph. Don't you think it's a wonderful blessing to be sold into uh, human trafficking by your brothers? This wonderful thing begins to take place, and, and then God, wait, raises up this guy Moses. Moses. Because Pharaoh was so nice to the Israelites, he loved them and saw that they were multiplying great, and he thought that was a great thing. No, he commanded kill all of the boys that are born to the people of Israel. They're multiplying too fast. I'm afraid of them. God's being too faithful to them and multiplying them. It turns out to be a blessing for Moses. He's raised in Pharaoh's own household by Pharaoh's daughter. He brings the people out of Egypt. He brings them to Mount Sinai. He shows His love to them. He brings them into the promised land. Not just a a land that needs to be cultivated, but a land that's already filled with good things. We were disobedient. We failed you all. So Ezra stands up and he reads this. And the people... They get it. They finally get it. Coming from a pastor's heart, this is perhaps the greatest moment of all history. The preacher stands up, and the congregation actually gets it. I've asked sometimes, you know, God, why would you call me to preach? I'm really not all that clear. Sometimes I'm rather, I ramble from time to time. Even in my own head, like I've got this condition, whatever it is, God, the way that you made me, my thoughts aren't words, so I have to translate them. Even when I read my writing, I think I'm incoherent. I look back in journal entries that I've written and I go, oh. I remember that this was a great and profound moment for me when I wrote it, but I have no idea what I'm saying. Maybe I'm writing in tongues, I don't know. Maybe I'm what's in the way. Maybe we should just read the Bible. You think the Bible would be more clear than I am? I think it would. Can we just read just the, just the Pentateuch, just the first five books of the Bible? Let's just read that this morning. Ezra did it and it brought the people to their knees, weeping. And the people are weeping and the priests are explaining what's written in the Word and they're discussing it. And the priests tell them, the Levites say, do not weep for this day is holy it belongs to the Lord. Rejoice in who God is. You know what I hear a lot around the church, or I just got back from the BMA of Arkansas meeting. You know what a lot of preachers like to talk about? Revival. What does revival look like in our churches? What does revitalization ministry look like? What does church health look like? You know where it begins? Saying that, God, you're right, and I agree with you. And actually coming to our knees, even as Christians, saying, I'm stiff-necked. God, I've been a Christian for 30 years, and I have not worshipped you the way that I was supposed to. My spiritual life is dead. I don't love you the way that I ought to. I neglect your word every opportunity I get. I don't go to bed on time. I don't wake up early. I wake up in the morning and I rush to get ready to get out the door and to go on with my life. Because guess what? You're not the biggest priority in my life, God. You're not even the second biggest priority in my life. You get one day a week. I've got six. God, you're right. I'm a stiff-necked people. As the people respond to this, What happens for the next coming weeks? They realized that it was written in the law that God had given them this command to worship Him in this festival called the Feast of Booths, which was happening the time that this revival was taking place. And so guess what? They turned around and they applied God's Word and they observed the Feast of Booths. They built their tents. They went outside. They worshiped God for ten days. They came together for a great and solemn assembly on the final day. And they worshiped God and they cried again, recognizing I'm still not perfect, but you know what? I'm closer because at least I can say I agree with you, God. And so the people tell Ezra again, stand up and read the law. And he reads the law, and after he's done reading it again, glorify the God from everlasting to everlasting. He begins this prayer, and he ends it. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. As it relates to church history, something similar happened after Jesus Christ came. When the churches established through Jesus' earthly ministry, those first 200 years of the church were really something special. Churches were being planted faster than any other time in history through the ministry of the apostles through the dispersion. And perhaps the, the biggest catalyst that caused church missions to be so effective in those early years of the church was because they were under constant persecution. I'm not talking the kind of persecution we like to talk about in America. I'm talking people were coming to kill them, to rip them out of their homes, to dispossess them of their property, and to put an end to their life. What a tremendous testimony for the church that people said, I count it, count it an honor. In fact, I count it too much glory that I should be put to death the same way that my Savior died. The early church was exploding under Persecution. I've told you all before that I think the most harmful thing ever to take place in the early church was when Constantine said that Christianity would become the national religion of Rome. Why would that be a problem? Well, because now the church, no longer under extreme persecution, people become complacent. Not only that, but what happens when you have persecution is nominal Christians stay away. The church would be better for it. If those who are spiritually dead, spiritually asleep, who want to be a nominal Christian, who want to have some sort of fire insurance policy for the end of their life, just in case this stuff is real, would just stay away from the church altogether because they're not spiritually led and they're not spiritually encouraging those who are around them. We think it's a bad thing when people leave the church. It can be a good thing. If the spiritually weak would leave, the spiritually vital would become vibrant. You think I'm making this up. What does your doctor do whenever there's decay growing inside of your leg? He cuts it out. Fortunately, there was somewhat of a revival that took place in the early church. Some thousand years later, after Constantine's edict, the church began to realize that the Bible was more authoritative than what people said or what people thought or what people felt. And we saw the church during the Reformation write these things that are called church covenants. For the first time in history, going all the way back to what the, the Israel did in Nehemiah's day, they established covenants amongst each other. We. We. Your church, admit that you are right. And we, your church, come together recognizing that you do good things for us that you're faithful in all that you do, and we want to be established, Lord, as your people. And so we establish this covenant as your church in life together, that we would be established as a people that are held accountable by your standards. The theme of the Bible is... In the relationship that we are able to have with God, the bringing back from alienation, that He establishes this on earth through the church or through His people, that this establishment and this relationship is not so individualistic that our worship of God takes place only in a vertical plane, but that it takes place horizontally. Amongst brothers and sisters who all are under the leadership and lordship of Christ. What establishes a people is that Christ is our Lord. That his word is truth. That it is what guides our life. That he is Lord of all. And that we are obedient to all. Our relationship with others Matters. In Sunday school this morning, we talked a little bit about that in my class. In our world and in our society, our focus has become so self-focused, I almost find it amusing that when people talk about mental health, their focus is completely enveloped and wrapped up around my self-identity, my self-expression, my self-esteem, my self-confidence. God's word speaks nothing of your relationship with yourself. God's relationship for humanity, the way that God has created man and woman and his image. God has created us to be relational beings going through Genesis. He says he creates the world. It's good. He creates light. It's good. He creates the animals. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. You get to Genesis chapter two, verse 17. It is bad. The fall hasn't even happened yet. It is bad that man should be alone. He creates man that we would have a relationship with creation. He gives humanity a special place in creation, creating us in His image. He gives us dominion of the world. He creates man that we would have a relationship with Him. And He creates us that we would have a relationship with other people. Not ourselves. God, you're right. I agree with you. I've made myself the own I've made myself the direction of worship that belongs solely to you. Our relationship with others matters. We should ask, what does my relationship with others look like? Am I consciously or unconsciously creating an impression of myself that is ingenuine? Am I deceiving people by putting up facades that are not really who I am? Am I honest about who I am with myself that I could even know? Am I honest in my words and in my actions? Do I exaggerate? Can people count on me? When I say that I'm going to do something, do I actually do it? Can people trust me? If somebody tells me something in confidence, does it remain confidential in me? Do people enjoy spending time around me? Or am I guilty of grumbling about the new trendy thing to grumble about? Am I impure in any way? Am I touchy? Am I, for whatever reason, unnecessarily sensitive These kinds of things destroy relationships. Do relationships really matter to me? One of the values of our church is our relationship with one another. That's not a mistake. More importantly, our relationship to God matters. We should ask ourselves about our relationship to God. Does the Bible live in me? I'll give you a hint. If you don't read your Bible, it probably doesn't. Do I pray earnestly? It's kind of hard to have a relationship with someone that you don't speak to. Do I make time for God as a priority? Or do I fit it into my life where it is convenient? Am I obeying God? Am I obeying God? Am I disobedient to God? Do I question the way that God is leading me and guiding me? Do I, do I sacrifice what God is saying for myself? Do I consider myself more authoritative than God himself? I asked these questions, and, and the first time I wrote them down, I remember thinking, how could I preach this to my church? Everyone's going to say, well, this is ridiculous. No one actually, no one needs to hear these questions. No one needs to think about it. And then I started going through the questions, and I went, no. I need to ask myself these questions. It's so easy to be a stiff-necked person. Do you know why it's easy? Because you live in a fallen world. We look at the confession that Nehemiah has made in this transformation. He says, I realize that if I just become resolved within myself to live out what God's Word is in a week's time, in two months' time, and..." However long it takes, I'll be back in the same position that I'm in now. I think you all have probably been around the block long enough to have even experienced this in your own life. You go to revivals or church camps or or you hear a particular sermon, probably not from me but from someone, or you hear something that is edifying in your life, you, you hear something that convicts you and compels you to live for God and for God's glory and to live it out, and you become resolved, God, I'm going to be faithful to study my Bible. God, I'm going to make prayer a priority in my life. God, I'm going to live for you, and I'm going to allow you to transform me by no longer standing in the way. God, I'm going to pray. I'm willing to pray. God, if there is any hesitance or rebellion in me, that you would break me. God, I love you so much. I agree with you so much that if I disobey your word, God, I pray that you would bring calamity into my life. God, I pray that I would see that you love me so much that if I stray away from you, that you would break my legs and make me sit next to you. I knew my teacher in third grade loved me whenever I wouldn't shut my mouth when she moved me up by her desk. God, I want you to love me like that teacher. I loved being next to my teacher's desk. She thought it was a punishment. I'd start talking just to get up there. I liked my third grade teacher. God, I love you so much. I want you to move me right next to your desk. God, if there's any rebellion in me, hold me close to you. Because this isn't an issue of a long leash or a short leash. (laughs) Because the second you say that I can go and do things on my own way, I know what I'm going to do. I'm a worm of a man. I am despicable. There's real evil inside of me. I don't want that. We make a firm covenant in writing. Because God tells us in His Word that His plan for holding us close to Him is the love and encouragement of the people that He brings into our life. Do you know how God breaks our legs? When our close friend tells us that we're disobeying God. Do you know how God slaps us upside the head? When someone who genuinely loves us and is faithful to consistently tell us that they love us, continuously encourages us, comes up behind us and says, you're living in rebellion against God. Your unfaithfulness is disobedience. we make this covenant that we would hold each other together. Father in heaven, I thank you this morning for the way that you bring people together and the way that you love us. God, I thank you for your community and the community of believers that you've brought us to. God, I pray that we would be such a reflection of who you are. That it would bring people all around us to know you and to love you and to see the great joy that we have in you. And Lord, I do pray that if there's disobedience in us, that you would bring calamity into our lives. God, if we're not glorifying you, I wish that you would end us. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What do you stand as we sing? We'll sing number 326.